You're listening to Ocean Currents, a podcast brought to you by NOAA's Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary. This radio program was originally broadcast on KWMR in Point Reyes Station, California. Thanks for listening. Welcome to another edition of Ocean Currents, the first of 2013. I'm your host, Jennifer Stock, and on the show we talk with scientists, educators, explorers, policymakers, ocean enthusiasts, adventurers, and more, all uncovering and learning about the mysterious and vital part of our planet, the blue ocean. I bring this show to you monthly on KWMR from NOAA's Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary, one of four national marine sanctuaries in California, all working to protect unique and biologically diverse ecosystems. Cordell Bank is located just offshore of the KWMR listening radius, right off the Marin-Sonoma coast, and it is a thriving area with ocean life above and below the surface. So Happy New Year. I realize that this is the eighth year of this program. So thanks for tuning in, and I hope you'll continue to listen in. So I've got a very busy show today for you. We're going to jump around a little bit in topics, but I wanted to start off the new year with some terminology clarification, a vocabulary lesson perhaps. Marine National Monument, Marine Reserve, National Marine Sanctuary, Marine Protected Area, What's the difference between all these types of marine protected areas? Lauren Wenzel from the National Marine Protected Area Center will join us to get us up to speed. Following Laura, we'll focus on the most recent announcement about the effort to expand the Gulf of the Farallons and Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuaries up the Sonoma Coast with Sanctuary Superintendent Dan Howard and learn about what's going on there. It's a really exciting opportunity happening now. And last, we'll close the show today honoring Rich Stalkup for his numerous contributions to the sanctuaries. We'll be talking with Shannon Lyday, a friend of his. So it's a busy show. We'll be right back to dive in. Stay with us. Welcome back. You're tuned to Ocean Currents. And we're going to start off this first segment just talking a little bit about some of the definitions of the different types of marine protected areas that we have in our nation. Uh, Marine protected areas have been put in place over the past several decades to work towards conserving vital marine habitats and resources. There are over 1,600 federal, state, and territory marine protected areas today, National Park, National Marine Sanctuary, some of these terms you may have heard. So we're going to talk a little bit about what the similarities are, what the difference is, and about this Marine Protected Area Center. So uh, live on the air, we have Lauren Wenzel joining us today from the National Marine Marine Protected Area Center. Laura, are you with us? Yes. Hi, Jenny. Welcome. You're live on the air. Great. Thanks for calling in. So let's just do a quick start off. Can you just give us some background on what is the National Marine Protected Area Center? Sure. So the National Marine Protected Area Center is part of the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, and we also work very closely with the Department of Interior and with other marine protected area programs. And we were created in the year 2000 because there were so many marine protected areas around the country, but nobody was looking at the big picture of how these protected areas related to each other and where they all were and what they did. And so our job is to look across all of those different programs and places and give people the big picture of what we have in the ocean and what kind of jobs we're doing uh, protecting it. 
That's a lot to catch up on in terms of the amount of marine protected areas that we have right now. Um, how has it been to kind of get up to speed since the designation of this center to get everybody together on the same page? Well, it's a challenge, as you said. Um, you know, the terminology around marine protected areas confuses a lot of people, and that's some of the work that we've done. I would say two of the main pieces of work we've done over the past two years have been completing an inventory so that we actually know what's out there in the ocean, and we can go to one place and look and see where all the protected areas are. And another major piece has been doing some work on terminology to try to help people get on the same page and be talking in the same language when we talk about protected areas. Speaking of which, that's what I wanted to spend a little bit of time with, with this terminology. Towards the end of 2012, there was uh, quite a bit of good news in, the, in um, reporting about what's happening in the ocean. And there was a lot of com- uh, confusion, I think, in some of the terms. And, you know, most recently, the Marine National Monument term versus the National Marine Sanctuaries. And I'm wondering, can you clarify, what is a Marine National Monument? Well, maybe I'll back up just for a second and talk about what a marine protected area is first, sure. and I can get into the different kinds. But a marine protected area is a general term that means any place in the ocean or even the Great Lakes that's protected. And uh, so it's more protected inside than outside is a simple way of thinking about it. And there are many different kinds of marine protected areas, and they're established under different legal authorities. And the two that you mentioned, the National Marine Sanctuaries and the National Monuments, are just two of the authorities that are used to establish federally managed MPAs. What's the different authority used for a marine national monument versus national marine sanctuary? Right. Well, the monument is a really interesting one because it's established under the Antiquities Act of 1906. And that act was signed by Teddy Roosevelt, who's, of course, considered to be the father of conservation in the U.S. And it was established because people were looting on Indian lands. And there was a lot of concern about these great pieces of American heritage being lost. And so one of the reasons the great powers in the Antiquities Act is that it gives the president the authority uh, without Congress being involved to single-handedly go ahead and protect an area. And the reason for that was because that immediate action was needed. And so that's one tool that has been very useful for protecting areas both on land and in the water over the past century. The National Marine Sanctuaries Act is more recent. It was passed in 1972, and it really reflects a different perspective on how we go about protecting areas in the ocean. It provides tools for a lot more public participation and is much more specific about the kinds of management that, are, that is authorized under that act. Both of them are very useful tools. Both of them can be used to protect areas in the ocean. They just go about it in different ways. Is there an advantage in terms of public input and public process to either one of those? I think the National Marine Sanctuaries Act provides more opportunities for public input, and that is one of the advantages of it, is that it um, specifically calls in the legislation for a sanctuary advisory council that's a group of stakeholders who can be involved in the planning and the management of an area, and it provides for more opportunity up front in designing a protected area. Excellent. What are the marine national monuments that we have? I'm only aware of one in the Northwest Hawaiian Islands. Are there others? 
There are a couple of others in the Virgin Islands. Um, the, the one in the Northwest Hawaiian Islands, uh, Papahanaumokuakea Marine National Monument, is the biggest uh, national monument of any kind in the entire United States and one of the biggest MPAs in the world. So it's a real standout, both in terms of its size and also in terms of the, the pristine marine environment that it protects in terms of coral reefs and the, the ecosystem in that remote area. Wonderful. Now, you were just mentioning earlier these two di- Marine Monument and National Marine Sanctuary. These are definitely from two different authorities. But what are some of the other levels of um, conservation, I should say, in terms of the terminology with the different types of MPAs? There's reserves that are very prohibitive of not taking anything. And then there's marine conservation areas. Are there, is there a threshold, like a little continuum of, of um, descriptions to make one, one, one or the other? Well, one of the challenges in talking about MPAs is that the levels of protection don't necessarily match up with the authorities. And so you can be talking about a marine reserve, which is really just a description of a very highly protected area in the ocean where extractive uses are not allowed. And a marine reserve could exist in a sanctuary, it could exist in a monument, uh, it could exist in a national park, or, uh, or the state of California has created a type of MPA called a marine reserve. So you can understand why there is a little bit of confusion because to say something is a marine reserve tells you that you can't take anything out of it, but it doesn't tell you what agency is managing it. What do you think is the, one of the most important things for those of us that are not tuned into the fine details here to keep in mind in regards to marine protected areas? That's a great question. I think one of the most important things is that a lot of times people think marine protected area means you can't go there and you can't fish there and you can't enjoy the place. And that is certainly not true. Um, based on our work, we've found that less than 3% of U.S. waters are off limits to uh, extractive uses, which means that almost all the waters in protected areas are available for people to go and enjoy and use. And that's, of course, what helps people really value and enjoy the ocean is being able to get out there and take advantage of it. And so I would just really leave that with your listeners, that marine protected areas are a place for us to all go and enjoy what the ocean has to offer. Thank you so much. Is there a website that you can direct listeners to for more information about this this center? Yeah, I would really encourage people to go to mpa.gov. And in the uh, upper left-hand corner, you'll see a tab called About MPAs, and that's a great place to start. Fantastic. Lauren, thank you so much for calling in for a quick overview of the U.S. Marine Protected Area Center, National Marine Protected Area Center, and I hope you have a great afternoon. And thanks so much for inviting me. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. All right. A quick overview. There's a lot of different levels of authority and uh, conservation involved. I think the main thing is just to stay tuned of what's going on in your neck of the woods. And up next, we are going to do that. We're going to talk with Dan Howard and find out what's happening with the our most local national marine sanctuaries here on the coast. There's a process in place and we're going to talk about it. So stay tuned. We'll be right back with that.
You're listening to Ocean Currents. My name is Jennifer Stock, and we're talking a little bit about the marine protected areas that we have in our nation, but most locally here, we're going to focus now on the Gulf of the Farallones and Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuaries that we have right along our coast that are making a move up the coast, starting a public process. And with me in the studio here, I have Dan Howard, the Sanctuary Superintendent for Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary. And full disclosure, this is my boss that I'm interviewing here in the station. <laughs> Welcome, Dan. Thanks very much, Jenny. No hard questions. All right. I'll do my best. So for those of you that were tuning in, right before Christmas, there's a big announcement about starting a public process to expand the Gulf of the Farallons and Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuaries up the coast to Point Arena. So, Dan, this has been an effort that's been discussed quite a bit for a number of years. Can you give us a brief history on it? Yeah, sure, Jenny. There's... um been several different efforts, um, which is why it's been so confusing, I think, for folks. Um, first of all, the sanctuary program in 2001 initiated a process to review our management plan, which finally concluded in 2008. And one of the recommendations in that management plan was to consider um, boundary expansion and to look at our existing sanctuaries and uh, evaluate whether they were um, doing the job they needed to do to conserve and protect resources in this area. So that was the marine sanctuary effort. And in 2004, um, due to uh, the public's interest in expanding sanctuary boundaries, um, Lynn Woolsey, our local congresswoman, who just retired, um, initiated some legislation trying to go through Congress legislatively to expand the sanctuary boundaries. And Lynn introduced legislation in each Congress since 2004 um, until she retired in January uh, to expand the sanctuary up to um, Alder, Alder Creek in southern Mendocino County. Um, that would be Gulf of the Farallons and Cordell Bank to expand slightly uh, north and to the west, um, which would protect the Bodega Canyon area. So there was a couple different efforts um, that were kind of ongoing. And so on December 20th of last year, um, NOAA announced that we were um, going to initiate a public process to review the boundaries for uh, Gulf of the Farallons and Cordell Bank uh, National Marine Sanctuary. This area is just a wild part of the coast, and I know that you spent a lot of time up there prior to your career with the National Marine Sanctuaries when you were with the National Marine Fisheries Service. Can you ex describe this area biologically a little bit, and how is it connected to this ecosystem down here? Yes, as, as uh, some of your listeners may know, that Sonoma and Southern Mendocino Coast is a is a spectacular area. Part of the reason for the proposed boundary that that Congresswoman uh, Woolsey put forward was based on um, working with local es experts and understanding that the Point Arena Upwelling Center is one of the strongest upwelling centers in North America, and what that does is fuel all those areas downstream, which includes Cordell Bank and Gulf of the Farallons, with nutrients from that upwelling center. And so the, the scientific justification for protecting this area between the current sanctuaries and the Point Arena upwelling center <clears throat> is to protect the source waters um, of Gorf, Gulf of the Farallons and Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary, as well as the spectacular coastline along the 
southern Mendocino and Sonoma coastlines. It also brings in a new habitat along the coast in the kelp areas. We don't have too much of this down here in the Gulf of the Farallones area, the Nereocystis, the bull kelp forest. Yeah, which is a, is a spectacular nearshore habitat. And really, um, starting really north of Fort Ross, where you start to see the huge, huge beds of, of bull kelp. Um, and with that, uh, you get a lot of uh, diver activity, um, kayakers, people playing in the water, which um, other than the local beaches, not so much, you know, south of Bodega, I would say. So it really does... Um, f uh, in terms of, of sanctuaries, bring in a whole new environment. It's exciting. So what are the main conservation benefits to designating this region as a national marine sanctuary? Lynn was definitely very, very interested in, in bringing this up the coast. What are the main benefits? Well, I think a, a lot of that will come out in the, the public scoping process. Um, We'll have three meetings initially, and maybe we can get to the places and times later on. But it's during that scoping process where we'll work with local communities and ask them, um, are there issues that we need to be aware of? Uh, initially, with the boundary expansion, the way we're thinking right now, if that were to occur, we would extend existing sanctuary regulations um, into the expanded area, at least initially. And for Gulf of the Farallons um, and Cordell Bank, um, this would mean prohibition on uh, oil and gas development. Um, we have uh, certain regulations that prohibit discharge into the sanctuaries of, of different kinds of, of pollutants, um, seabed disturbance regulations. So all of these go towards maintaining uh, a healthy and productive marine ecosystem. Now, the state of California just completed a process of putting in a different network of marine protected areas near the coast. Those are the, that's part of the State Marine Life Protection Act. Do you think there's going to be any confusion in the communities about what we're doing with what the State Marine Protected, Marine Life Protection Act has done? Yeah, that, I think that's going to be one of our tasks, um, and certainly during the, the scoping meetings, um, the first part of the meeting is our opportunity to explain to those folks that show up kind of what sanctuaries are, what we do, and who we are, um, because there is a lot of confusion, and I think those that listen to Lauren's description prior to me coming on, it, it, it really is confusing for the public keeping track of kind of who, what, when, where, and how. Um, the state process was um, different from the marine sanctuary process. They're, they're two um, different management agencies with slightly different missions. And the sanctuary program has worked very closely with the state in um, the central and the southern and the, the um, northern um, section of their Marine Life Protection Act. So we've, we've worked together and um, we understand each other, but they're two very different processes. And that, that'll be one of the things we try to accomplish during the scoping meetings is to differentiate between um, kind of what sanctuaries are and from the state process, the Marine Life Protection Act, and the establishment of the, the different marine protected areas, the network along the coast of California. Great. So tell me about the public process. What does this entail? Is this only for the locals that attend the meetings, or can people outside the area comment as well? 
We encourage everybody to comment who has an interest in the marine environment. We will be holding the three scoping meetings in coastal communities that are most directly affected by sanctuary designation. Um, and But that's just the start of the process. There's a 60-day um, comment period where people can comment electronically or via snail mail or attend one of the three scoping meetings um, and give their, their comments orally, which will be recorded. The, the first meeting that we're going to have is in Bodega Bay, and that'll be on January 24th. Um, then we're going to move up to Point Arena on February 12th, and then the next night in Gualala at the Community Center on February the 13th. And the dates, times, um, website where you can comment, and mailing address are all on our website. And I think that's probably the easiest way rather than trying to keep track of it right now. So if listeners wanted to go to Cordell Bank, one word, .noaa.gov, um, we have a link on our page that will take you to the Gulf of the Farallons webpage where we put all the information just trying to consolidate it, which is Farallons noaa.gov and, and all this information is there for folks to check out. Excellent. It's all in one, one spot. So people can comment either at a public scoping meeting or they can comment online. And both the information for those, the, sc the scoping meetings and the online option are all available at either the Cordell Bank or Farallons.noaa.gov websites. Um, how about the Sanctuary Advisory Council? How are they involved? This is a group of volunteers that represent different constituencies that are working together with the sanctuary. And how will the Sanctuary Advisory Council be involved? Well, the representatives that sit on our advisory council um, have seats that represent all different constituents that, that use the sanctuary. Now, certainly NOAA was very supportive of Congresswoman Woolsey's legislation um, that she was trying to introduce all those years. And in fact, on two different occasions, our advisory councils wrote letters supporting uh, Lynn Woolsey and, and her legislation. So as we move through the scoping process, I imagine our advisory council members will be um, attending those scoping meetings. And certainly at our advisory council meetings, which are open to the public, um, we will probably be discussing um, boundary expansion and, and the comments that we receive and and certainly invite any of the public who'd um, be interested in that on attending. Um, every other council meeting we have out here in West Marin at the, at the Red Barn. Is one of the things that comes up from time to time is the stretch of a geographic area. And it, could this potentially become its own national marine sanctuary in the future? It seems like Gulf of the Farallons is kind of centered down here and getting all the way up the coast might be a big extension. Is that one of the things that's kind of open for discussion? It's all open for discussion right now at, during the scoping process, and, and certainly that is one possibility. Um, when that would probably happen would be at our next uh, management plan review where those kinds of things come up. Um, but certainly if, if a member of the public wanted to attend a scoping meeting or submit a comment via email, um, and make that recommendation, you know, that they feel that this really should be its own uh, national marine sanctuary. Um, that was some, that would certainly be something that we would consider because, yeah, I, I agree with you. It's, it's difficult, I think, for those folks in, you know, Point Arena and Gualala to, to think of themselves as, a, you know, maybe a, a San Francisco-based sanctuary. 
Yeah. Now, Cordell Bank would get a little bit further. Cordell Bank is currently completely offshore, just west of Gulf of the Farallons. And the proposal is to go a little bit further north and encompass Bodega Canyon. You had the opportunity to explore Bodega Canyon a little bit, I think, two years ago now. Um, do we know much about the habitat down below? We know that's a really rich upwelling area, but down below on the seafloor. Yeah, I I did have that opportunity in both uh, 2010 and 2011, and in my prior life that you referred to earlier working with the, the fishery service, we did um, a lot of work out at Bodega Canyon, and it's always been my feeling that Bodega Canyon is an integral part of the Cordell Bank uh, ecosystem, if you will, um, because of all the krill and other zooplankton that migrate out of that canyon every night and then are carried south by the prevailing current. Um, and so that in two or three days, all those uh, krill and, and other zooplankters are kind of delivered to Cordell Bank, if you will. So all those critters, the sessile invertebrates that, that live on the bank are dependent on food delivery to their door. And certainly I, I think the Bodega Canyon is a kind of an integral part of the, of the Cordell Bank system. Interesting. It'll be fun to see. I know we always go straight for Bodega Canyon when we're heading out for our field seminar to look for whales and seabirds. And it is. It's a hot spot on the surface as well with all that food. Great. Any other last comments about this exciting opportunity or the year ahead with the sanctuaries? Well, it certainly is going to be an exciting year for us. I think if the uh, boundary expansion um, proposal moves forward, we're anticipating that this is going to be an 18 to 24-month process. Um, there will be several places along the way where we will encourage the public to get involved and to comment. Certainly, the scoping meetings is the first opportunity, and I invite everybody, please, to come out. Um, give us your opinions. Let us know what you think we should be doing or should be considering. Um, and this, all this information will go into development of a, a draft environmental impact statement, um, at which time there will be a second opportunity for the public to, to weigh in. So um, certainly keep an eye on our website. We have an outstanding education <laughs> coordinator and outreach nice? person. Thanks, Dan. <laughs> who keeps our website updated and current, and I'd say that would be uh, the place to to look. Um, you know, to keep in touch with what's going on and and where we are, and always uh, feel free to give us a call on on the phone. Um, we're there, and we'd love to talk to you. Yeah, we're over in the Red Barn, right by the Point Reason National Seashore headquarters. Well, we have a couple extra minutes. Um, what are some other activities happening this year for Cordell Bank? Are you planning any other research efforts at the Cordell Bank? Um, yeah, well, if we can find time outside of our, <laughs> our boundary expansion activities, which I think are going to consume us. Um, but no, we, we do have um, a couple of things on tap. One, we're hoping and striving to maintain our, our monitoring program that we um, have We'll be entering into our ninth year with PRBO Conservation Science and Gulf of the Farallons, uh, monitoring ocean productivity, krill, and ocean conditions, along with seabirds and marine mammals. That's ongoing. But um, in the fall, it'll be August or September, we're hoping to initiate a uh, remotely operated uh, vehicle, ROV cruise, out to Cordell Bank. And one of the things we've never done out there um, is characterize the invertebrate cover on the bank, which is a phenomenal display of, of sponges and cold water corals and 
all different kinds, types of invertebrates. And we spent a lot of time working on fishes and habitat, but never you know, quantitatively tried to assess the invertebrate cover on the bank. So that's going to be our goal um, in the fall of 2013 is to get out there and weather permitting, um, spend four or five days uh, looking at some different areas on the bank and, and characterizing the invertebrate cover on the bank. Awesome. And if people want to see what that invertebrate cover looks like, at least in the high reef areas, the Oakland Museum of California will be reopening in early June, I believe the first weekend of June, and there is a big exhibit there about the Cordell Bank in the new Natural Sciences Gallery. So I will definitely keep you posted about that. But they did a beautiful, beautiful recreation of some of the high reaches of the bank in that exhibit. So that's another exciting thing I'm looking forward to this year. It's opening the doors to that exhibit. Yay. All right. Well, Dan, thanks so much for coming in today to the studio. My pleasure. All right. Happy well, New Year. Happy New Year. We'll be back in just a few minutes. We will talk with Shannon Light in a little bit. We're going to take a quick break. Thanks for tuning in to Ocean Currents. You're listening to KWMR, Point Reyes Station, and Bolinas. Hi. Sorry, God's supposed to keep my eyes open for whales and sing out every time. But I'm lost in the infinite series of the sea as the ship rolls beneath me. So roll on, deep and dark blue ocean, blue bottomless soul, roll on with me. As ten thousand blubber hunters sweep over the Late last year, we lost a great person, well-known and, and deeply respected in the natural world community. Rich Stalkup passed away December 15th. It's left many of us deeply saddened and with deep gratitude and reflection of how much he has influenced so many people. I'd like to take some time today to highlight the contributions he made to our national marine sanctuaries, both Gulf of the Farallones and Cordell Bank. When I first came to the sanctuary about 13 years ago, Rich was the second person I was told about, and immediately we were in touch. And I hadn't had the appreciation for seabirds that I should have at the time, but quickly was reeled in and captivated and have been a big fan ever since and very motivated to continue to learn more. Rich probably visited Cordell Bank waters more than anyone alive today. He's been going out to sea for years. And he made Cordell Bank known as a rare seabird hotspot. He called it the albatross capital of the top half of the world and brought attention to its unique properties in his writings and outings. His book, Ocean Birds of the Nearshore Pacific, is truly one of my most important books on my bookshelf. On top of a million other accolades, he worked intimately with the staff and volunteers at the Farallons Marine Sanctuary Association and the Gulf of the Farallons Sanctuary for nearly 20 years. So on the phone with us joining me today is Shannon Lyde. She's the former Beach Watch Manager at the Farallons Marine Sanctuary Association and currently a graduate student propelled into this role as a graduate student in part by her time with Rich. Shannon, welcome. You're live on the air. Thank you. 
I really appreciate you taking some time to talk today. Um, Rich was, I know, a very influential person in your life. Can you talk a little bit about his role with Beachwatch and the program overall and, and what he did with it? Sure. Beachwatch is a program of the Gulf of the Farallons National Marine Sanctuary. It's a volunteer monitoring program, and they have over 100 volunteers that monitor beaches from Sonoma County down through San Mateo County. And the program started back in 1993, and Rich Stahlcup was involved with the program since the very beginning. He trained all of the volunteers in bird identification, either during their initial training or also during continuing education bird walks, as well as the volunteers, when they document dead birds on the beaches, they take photographs. And Rich looked at every single photograph to verify the identification as the bird as well as to provide age and sex if possible. So Rich's expertise really validated the program and I think made the program reputable. Wonderful. And it's been a very important data set when there's been disturbances in the marine environment from oil spills and um, other different events going on. So I know it's a very well-respected program and, and Rich's role is huge. Tell me about your time with Rich when you worked over at Beach Watch with the Sanctuary Association. What types of activities did you do together? Well, I was the manager of Beach Watch for seven years and I met Rich right when I started back in 2003. And when I first started the position, I had the unique opportunity of having Rich personally trained me in bird identification. So once a month for my first couple years as the Beach Watch manager, I would meet him in Point Reyes, and the two of us would drive around in his old Suburban <laughs> to all of his favorite haunts in Point Reyes, just looking at every bird species that we came across. So right at the beginning of my career, I was able to spend a lot of time with him. And it's funny looking back because I knew he was a bird guru, but I don't think I realized at the time how lucky I was to be trained by Rich one-on-one. That's great. I know a lot of people would be so envious to have that time with him. So you're so, so lucky. How did Rich influence you personally? You're now in graduate school pursuing a, an advanced degree, and you've, you've said that he definitely helped influence you to some degree. How did, how did that happen? Yeah, Rich definitely helped influence where I am today. He took me on my first pelagic birding trip, which was actually out to Cordell Bank. And his enthusiasm about seabirds was contagious. He always said a pelagic bird never willingly comes to land except to breed. And I was really fascinated by that concept that these birds spend their lives traversing the ocean, some traveling mind-blowing distances. And after that trip, I started spending as much time at sea as possible. I worked as a bird and marine mammal observer for uh, both sanctuaries and PRBO conservation science um, throughout my years as a beach watch manager. And being out on those cruises really helped stimulate um, me when I decided to leave beach watch to pursue a graduate degree. So... I'm currently finishing my master's degree in marine science at Hawaii Pacific University, and I'm using at-sea research cruise data 
to look at the abundance and distribution of shearwaters, the type of seabird, uh, along the entire west coast of North America and their relationship to different oceanographic parameters. So I definitely think that um, spending that time with Rich and uh, him as well as other people influenced the fact that I'm now I'm studying seabirds in graduate school. It's really interesting to look back um, from when I first met him. That's cool. Where I am today. Do you have, I'm sure you have many stories, and I know there's so many stories about time in the field with Rich. Do you have one special story that you can share? Yeah, I think that um, probably one of my favorite things about Rich is he just never tired of teaching even novice birders and was never above looking at the most common species. And I remember one time we were in Point Reyes and he put a shorebird in his scope and asked me what it was. And I was looking at this bird and racking my brain, and I, I couldn't come up with an answer. And he said, it's a willet. And I just felt so silly. I was <laughs> sure it was something rare or he would not be quizzing me. But as he would say throughout the years that we birded together, you've seen a willet, but you've not seen this willet. Um, so I always laugh back at that, that he, I mean, to think of, some of these bird species, you know, he had seen tens of thousands and he never tired of going out in nature and looking at everything that it had to offer, not only birds, but he was incredibly knowledgeable in reptiles, dragonflies, and wildflowers. And I just feel like he was a, a walking encyclopedia and he had a story for everything. I also loved when he was teaching in the field, a group of birders, everybody would have their books open and be buried in the book. And he would say, why don't you look at the bird? <laughs> believe the bird, not the book. <laughs> oh, well, I, one of the things I like about, like about Rich is that he, when I got to go out on a couple boat trips with him, he starts naturalizing from the moment he hits the dock and is pointing things out right away. And it just pointed out to me to be present where we are right now. You don't have to be on a destination to be observing and witnessing. It's right now, all the time, we have this opportunity. And it's a nice gift to, to remember that. Yeah, he never, I mean, I remember on bird walks, even at our our lunch break, everybody else would sit down and catch up. And he never sat down. He would have a sandwich in one hand and his binoculars in the other, you know, he just um <laughs> He never tired of, of seeing what was out there. So Rich was an all-around lover of nature, but also a great teacher, a leader, a friend, a photographer, and a writer. And you have a poem that he wrote that you can share with us. And I'm wondering if you could take a moment here to read it on the air and give us some background of how you got a hold of this poem. Sure. Yeah, Rich was definitely very eloquent. He wrote every month bird notes for the Beach Watch volunteers, and it was never cut and dry how he described birds and their natural history was always very poetic. And I knew that he had different writings, but actually after I had told him that I was leaving for graduate school, he brought in a copy of this poem for me, and he wrote it back in 1979. And it's about storm petrels, which are the smallest of all the seabirds, and they're found throughout the world's oceans. 
And so the title of the poem is Storm Petrol in Spanish, which is La Goladrina de la Tempestad. So the poem goes like this. Shadowy night birds of the high seas, bat-winged, plankton-fed, fearless gnomes of ocean troughs, all colorless, save black and gray, all tippy-toes on roughest, roaring seas, furry-feathered, burrow-nesting, soft as earthen mold, yet coarse as stiffest monsoon wind. What tales you sing of ships and fathoms mysteries, silent only to the ears of men. Smallest birds of open sea at peace with all your feathered brothers, you find your way over countless miles of trailless, trackless sea, leaning on gravity, flowing with the earth's rotation wind, listening to the sound of water on water, and charting stars beyond the means of the finest sextant, you find your way beyond the grasp of minds and men. That's a beautiful, beautiful poem. Thank you so much for reading that. Yes, definitely. I'm glad I could share. Well, I know that there are lots of people sharing wonderful stories about Rich, and I thought I would just direct folks that would like to learn more about his incredible life and contributions um, by visiting www.prbo.org. Rich was one of the founders of PRBO, and I know that they are um, recording all this, and you can visit that website to read and, and also to leave your own memory. Shannon, thank you for joining us today, and good luck finishing up your thesis. Thank you for having me. Take care, and have a great new year. You too. Bye-bye. It's tough to talk about this all in the past tense, but I know there's so much wonderful life that has been um, stimulated and so much wonderful observation of nature through Rich. So we really greatly thank you, Rich, for everything you've given us. Just roll on deep and dark blue ocean, blue bottomless soul. Roll on with me, roll on with me, roll on with me, roll on with me. Thank you for listening to Ocean Currents. This show is brought to you by NOAA's Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary on West Marin Community Radio, KWMR. Views expressed by guests on this program may or may not be that of the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration and are meant to be educational in nature. To learn more about Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary, go to cordellbank.noaa.gov.